Amen. Uh, the, uh, the service that we have put together, Michelle and, and Pastor Mark before he left, and the choir and the orchestra, and is it's going to be an amazing concert. So I would encourage you to invite your friends to come and be a part of it. That's just a glimpse into what it is. And it's timely, isn't it? God is so amazing in the way that he orchestrates things and the way he's sovereign over everything. Isn't it timely that the theme of our concert this year should be One Nation Under God, and especially in light of some of the news things that have happened this past week? Well, as long as people are moving, why don't I release the kids through grade four and they can head off to the children's church. And so if you're through grade four, I release you now as we look at Colossians. And uh, we're in Colossians. And if you've been part of our journey this summer, you know that we're looking at the, uh, the truth of letters that live, God's timeless message to the early church. And we're doing that by looking at uh, various readings. If you're following our summer reading plan, we're reading through the New Testament chronologically. We've got a summer reading book available at our Welcome Center that talks about the explicit gospel because God's timeless message to the early church is the message of the gospel. And so we've been looking at the gospel together and, and we've been going through the, the letter to the church in Colossae. And so today we're at uh, verse 24 of chapter 1 and we'll be working through uh, verse 5 of chapter 2. And it's been fun, hasn't it, to go through this letter and look at it a little more closely and, and get an idea of what exactly the core of this letter is all about. And as we've looked at it, the, the first week that we looked, we saw that Paul started by writing to this church that he had never been to, and he wrote to them, and the very first thing he did was offer a prayer of thanks. And then from that prayer of thanks, he moved into a prayer of petition for them, interceding for them, because as you thank God for people, you immediately move into intercession for them. And then, as he moved past that, he began to proclaim the supremacy of Christ and how Christ is supreme over all because Christ is, is God, and, and he's king, and he's sovereign over all, and he will be reconciling all of creation back to himself. And then last week, we looked at while that cosmic aspect of restoration is amazing, that also there's the personal aspect of restoration that is involved in the gospel and that we can truly have a personal relationship with the God of the universe. And so today, as we step into this passage, we're taking a look and the title for today is that the gospel is the disclosed mystery. The gospel is the disclosed mystery. And interestingly, the, the big idea for, for this week is that understanding the disclosed mystery keeps us from being deceived. And I'm amazed still by God. I don't know. Do you still get amazed by God? I trust you do, and I pray that you do. Sometimes we shouldn't be amazed by God. It should be like we expect him to be totally more than we could imagine. But I'm sometimes so amazed by him and, and that um, the way that he works out so many different details. And it's interesting to me that we would be in this passage of Scripture and... Uh, following the, um, the ruling of the Supreme Court on Friday. And uh, as we think about what does it mean for us to be kept from being deceived, and uh, I, as we look at this passage, it's going to be 
it's going to be talking about how, how Paul longs for this church in Colossae to be kept from being deceived by fine-sounding arguments. And uh, I don't know if you had opportunity to read some of the arguments that the justices um, made in their explanation of why they voted the way they did, four on one side and five on the other. And it's interesting, as I've been following that, and as Karen has been reading me things on Facebook, because that's how I keep an eye on all of you, um, and uh, as she's been reading things to me, those of you who've been posting some things, and uh, to be able to understand and see that on both sides of this issue, I believe, that we've been deceived. And um, I think that the timeliness of this message today helps us understand, more importantly, the steps we need to take to keep from being deceived. The thing about deception is that it keeps us from thinking correctly. It keeps us from thinking correctly. And, uh, and deception, it's been said, is close enough to seem true, but far enough away to be devastating. Close enough to seem true, but far enough away to be devastating. The truth is, as we step into being deceived from time to time, it can take us away from our mission. Deception can distract us from our mission. And we need to remember that our mission as the church on Friday morning is the same that the mission is for us today. And the ruling hasn't changed that. Our mission is to display the love of Christ to a world that desperately needs that. Amen. So let's take a look at this passage of Scripture and see how God, in his perfect timing, by showing us what he, what he spoke through Paul to this church, can illuminate for us. Verse 24 of chapter 1, Paul says, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in all its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you. And for those at Laodicea, and for all those I have not met personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart, and united in love, so that they may have the, the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in the body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are, and how firm your faith in Christ is. Father, thank you for your word. 
And I pray now as we look at the truth of your word, Lord, that it would be the truth of your word that would wash over our hearts. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd open our hearts to hear your word. And I pray that you would illuminate it for us, that you would move in our lives, that we would go away from here changed because we've been in your presence and we've been in your word, that we could be more and more the men and, God, men and women of God that you've designed us to be. And I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So we have a, a wonderful opportunity to look at God's word and have it come alive for us. And we see that understanding the disclosed mystery keeps us from becoming deceived or keeps us from being deceived. And the first thing we see as Paul unpacks this is that if we're going to understand the disclosed mystery, we need to understand that suffering, servanthood, and struggling are expected. Amen? Amen. Amen. Yeah, all right, yay. So what does that look like and what does that mean? And Paul unpacks this. And, and what's really exciting about this section we're looking at today, remember, this is a group of people that Paul has never met. And so this passage right here that we're looking at is Paul introducing himself to them. He's letting them know who he is and what his ministry is and what he's been called to. And in so doing, his prayer, I believe, is that they'll be motivated, inspired by what he's done so that they'll take that same role upon themselves. And so as he introduces himself, he introduces himself in the most unusual way. He says, now I rejoice in what was suffered for you. And it's like, wow, that's kind of... And I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. That can be kind of confusing for us. As he talks about suffering, and then he talks about servanthood, and then he talks about struggling, but he talks about what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. And when we look at that, we can become confused, and we can say, well, it must be then that the cross wasn't enough. Maybe there was something lacking in the cross that Paul had to make up for. No, that's not what he's saying, okay? <laughs> the cross of Christ is sufficient for our salvation, amen? amen. Jesus paid the price for our sin on the cross, and then he said, it's finished. So that's not what he's talking about. So he must be talking about something else, right? So you can look at that this week, and no, let's look at it now. Okay, it's really important because you'll remember... We're looking at these letters to the early churches because this is the most exciting thing. This, I don't know if you understand how incredibly exciting the Word of God is, but what it's doing is, is these letters to the early churches. We've got Paul who's got one foot in the Old Testament and one foot in the New Testament, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. We've talked about that. And he's straddling this. And he's been raised under all these understandings in the Old Testament and what the teachings were. And, he, and he's understanding those. But then when the light came and, and Jesus revealed himself and, and the scales were taken off and Paul understood the Old Testament in a way that, that allowed him to bring new life to it and, and, and to allow us to see the fulfillment that had been happening, these letters help us get a grip of that so that we can grab hold of that. And so what he's, what he's unpacking here for us 
is the truth of the fact that in the Old Testament, as they looked forward, and we know in First Peter it says that those who were writing, the prophets and, and all of those, as they were writing, they longed to see, what is this I'm writing about? It looks wonderful. Am I going to live to see it? You know, it's kind of like us with, with, with the rapture. Am I going to live to see it? Will it happen in my lifetime? And so they're writing these things about, about the coming Messiah, and they're longing for this because they're living in the evil age, right? In Jewish understanding, this, this Old Testament is the evil age, but they're looking forward to the age to come when the Messiah comes and establishes this new order, this new age to come. And they're writing about this and they're longing to be a part of it and longing for it to happen. And so the Messiah comes, only the Messiah doesn't establish a new age. The Messiah hangs on a cross and dies. And it brings nothing but confusion to them because, wait a minute, all that we've been writing about, all that we've been reading is that Messiah will come and, and there'll be a new age established. And, and that's not to their detriment. We understand that many times when we read, we think it goes like this and like this and like this. But in God's economy and in God's unveiling of this mystery, he revealed... Yes, Messiah came to establish the new age. But there's this overlap period that nobody quite expected. And that's the period we're living in right now. It's this overlap period between the evil age and the age to come. And it's this, this age where the Messiah has come. And he has uh, disclosed the mystery and he's revealed himself and the truth of what's available in him. And he's reigning from heaven. He came, he lived, he died, he was buried, he rose again. He's at the, the Father's right hand and he's reigning from heaven. But the pretender prince is still here. And the pretender prince is still reigning evil over us at the same time. And so suffering happens. Until that point in time when Messiah comes in the second advent... And sin is destroyed. And our future is secured in the new age that comes, completely free from sin. But in the midst, Paul helps us understand that, that suffering is to be expected. That servanthood is to be expected. And that there's a struggle that's to be expected. Now, why is this? Well, you'll remember last week we looked at verse 22. He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy. Okay, so Christ, we understand he came and he died a physical death on the cross. It was an actual physical death on the cross. His body on the cross. But now what we need to understand and what Paul is trying to help us understand is this. And it goes on, it says... In regard to Christ's afflictions, see it in verse 24, for the sake of his body, which is the church. Right? Understand that the church is the body of the crucified Christ. The church is the body of the crucified and risen Christ. So we suffer as the body of Christ. And we should not be surprised by that. Peter tells us that. Don't be surprised at the painful trials you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. Encouragement verse 101. Okay? 
But it is encouraging if we understand suffering the way Paul does here. And he says, what, what I, I fill up my flesh, what's lacking for you. And Paul understood this idea of suffering in a way differently than we did. He understood that Christ's body was the beneficiary of his suffering. Christ's body was the beneficiary of his suffering. Now that's big. Because when we understand that we're, and, and that's where the servanthood comes from too, right? He understood that he was a servant of the church. He was here to serve the gospel, serve the church. And so in serving the church, he felt comfortable. Actually, he rejoiced in being able to suffer for the church, to suffer for the body of Christ. And it's almost like, in a way, it's almost like he was wanting to take the place of the suffering. Okay, so, so it's kind of like this. I don't know if you've seen this new show. It's called um, In an Instant. All right, and they show things that happen in an instant and, and all the things that happen like before and after that. But on the, on the one episode I saw, there was this grizzly bear that came and, and this father and his daughter were out walking and this grizzly bear came. And as the grizzly bear came to attack the daughter, the man immediately jumped between the daughter and the bear. Okay, and if you're dad here, you understand that, right? That's almost what Paul's saying here. It's almost like he's saying he jumps in to take the suffering so that the church won't have to. He, he jumps in and says, Satan, attack me, almost. All right, it's on that order. It's saying, I'll, I'll take this so that it can build the church up. Now, why is that so important? Because Paul's not going to live forever. Okay, and so his, his understanding is that if he's strong enough to take that struggling and that, that, that suffering now so that the church can be built up, then when they get built up, they'll be able to take that suffering so that the other people who are there will be able to be built up. See, it's, it's always for someone else that we endure these things. And that's what Paul's making clear to us here. It's this corporate aspect of all of this, that we suffer together. When one part suffers, every part suffers. When one part rejoices, every part rejoices. So we like the metaphor of the body when, it, when, we, when it's the comfortable aspects. But when it's this part that we understand that we need to suffer because we're in this overlap period, that the bride suffers, the body of Christ is suffering. So, some questions. In what ways are you a servant who is struggling and suffering for the body of Christ? How do you see yourself serving the body of Christ? Do you, do you come, you know, in some ways expecting to be served by the body, or do you come expecting to serve the body? And as you're out in your day-to-day -day life, are you thinking about how your life can serve the body? And then are you thinking of ways that you can struggle with all of God's effort within you? And then, how can my suffering make other people stronger? How can my suffering make others stronger? 
How, how can my suffering protect you from something that would happen in your life? And boy, when you start thinking about it that way, all of a sudden suffering takes on a whole different meaning. And it starts to look different. And we understand there's suffering. We're going to suffer for being Christians. That's going to come in our lives. And, and we understand from the ruling that happened that that's probably going to become more prominent as time goes on. More and more, we're going to experience ridicule and marginalization and everything else that comes because the country's moving away from Christianity. Okay. But there's suffering that happens in our lives because we live in a fallen world as well. So how do we handle that in a way that brings honor and glory to him? I thought about this, and so, you know, I, I've got this cancer thing, right? And I use this as an illustration carefully, cautiously. No, I'm, I'm doing okay, and, and I praise God for that. You know, times to time, there's still some pain stuff from side effects and things like that. It's no big deal. <laughs> but as that comes into my life, how can I use that in a way that allows God's light to shine? How can the suffering that I experience impact other people's lives? And how can it impact you as, as you experience suffering, as you see how, how God allows me to handle that? Now, Thursday, I happened to be at the cancer doctor and, you know, for a treatment, and it's all good. Every couple of months, maintenance, treatment, it's all good. I'm not trying to f put any fear in you or anything like that. Everything's good. So don't miss the point of the illustration. All right? And I'm there. And my doctor says, I have these doubts. But I met somebody from your church who got some really bad news who has no doubt at all. No doubt at all. She's absolutely sure what's going on in her life. How can that be? And he starts telling me, you're like that too, he said. As a matter of fact, all your people are like that. <laughs> Amen? I didn't know you were my people, but that's, a, you, know, you know, whatever that means. But, but the point of it is this. So we don't suffer as those who have no hope. See, we suffer. We understand that God is sovereign. God is over this. He's allowed or decreed whatever comes in our lives. What happens to me is less important than how I handle what happens to me. All right? And it's so huge for us to remember because then we're able to step into these things and we understand that suffering is something that can build up the body of Christ. And it doesn't surprise us because our Savior suffered. And he said, if the world hated me, guess what? It's going to hate you. And it shows in all different ways. So how can my suffering keep evil and Satan away from you? How can my suffering make you stronger? As we start thinking about that. All right, second thing we see. Understanding the disclosed mystery keeps us from being deceived. And we don't want to be deceived into thinking that we're not going to suffer if we understand the gospel. Suffering's going to come. Struggling's going to come. Servanthood is going to come. Secondly, the mystery's been revealed. The mystery's been revealed. And it's almost like in this passage, he's saying, extra, extra, read all about it. Okay, it's like this amazing truth. 
Listen, the mystery's been revealed. And the mystery is Christ. All right? And, and so Paul, in introducing himself, isn't proclaiming himself. He's proclaiming Christ. It's all about Christ for Paul. Jesus is the very center of everything for Paul. I heard the story of a, of a pastor who was having trouble relating to the kids in, in the church. And so the elders came to him and they said, you know, you've really got to figure out a way to re- relate to the kids. You know, and so he decided to go ahead and put a, a children's message into the service. And so the first week he called all the kids up and, and they're all like, okay, what's going on here? You know, and so, and so he says, okay, kids, now let's have some interaction time here. And, and I'm thinking of an animal in your backyard. Anybody guess what it is? And everybody's just sitting like this and says, okay, it's got a big bushy tail. You know. All right, there's an animal in your backyard, a big bushy tail, it climbs the trees. Anybody? Just crickets, and he's thinking, I'm dying here. You know? He says, okay, it's this animal in your backyard, big bushy tail, climbs trees and eats nuts. All of a sudden, this little boy goes like this, and he says, okay. He says, well, it sounds like a squirrel, but I know the answer is Jesus. <laughs> it's Jesus. The undisclosed, the mystery disclosed is Jesus. It's Christ. He is amazing. And he is the one who, who has, he, he has revealed the word of God in all its fullness. And Paul says that I, I make myself a servant so that I can proclaim the fact that the mystery has been revealed. And that this mystery has allowed the word of God to be known in all its fullness. That God can be fully known And we understand and know that John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was made flesh, made His dwelling among us. And we beheld His glory, that, that Jesus is the Word, that Christ is the Word of God. And to have the Word more fully known is to understand what does it mean to have Christ in you and for you to be in Christ. See, as we, as we understand more and more who Christ is, as, as this mystery has been disclosed, we celebrate more and more what it means for us to be in him and him in us. And as we abide in him and he abides in us, we do whatever we, we, you know, whatever we ask, he'll, he'll do for us. And that's not talking about prosperity gospel. That's talking about bring suffering into my life so that you can be proclaimed. Whatever needs to happen in my life so that you can be proclaimed. And it's understanding that. Remember that as the word came, Jesus came and took on flesh, he was a visible expression of the thoughts of God. As he walked on this earth, he was a visible expression of the thoughts of God and he made God fully known. That everything we might want to ask about God and his purposes can and must now be known. We, we can know God in his fullness. And it's been disclosed to the saints, even though it had been kept secret before or hidden before. And you're like, what's up with that? Why didn't he just like reveal it right away, you know? Well, understand that, that in his plan... 
everything worked together exactly the way that he designed it from before he spoke the world into existence. God had a plan. And Galatians 4 tells us that when the time had fully come, God sent Christ to be born. In the fullness of time, at the exact moment that God knew was the right moment, he sent Christ. When everything had come together so that perfectly the plan of God could be fulfilled. And it was revealed. And it was revealed, and we should be celebrating this because that allowed it to be made known to the Gentiles. Apart from that, we're hopeless. But because of this overlap period, because of the disclosing of the mystery, the Gentiles are brought in. God has chosen to make that known to us, Christ in us. So how have you come to understand the word of God in its fullness? How have you understood what it means to be in Christ and have Christ in you? And how are you living in that in such a way that it brings you victory in the midst of what you're experiencing? Remember, we're looking at understanding the disclosed mystery keeps us from being deceived. Suffering, servanthood and struggling, expected. Mystery's been revealed, finally. Perfection is the purpose. Perfection is the purpose. Paul says, we proclaim him, chapter uh, chapter 1, verse 28, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. And then he goes on to explain what that means. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart, united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, that they may know the mystery of God, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So we see that perfection is the purpose, that that Paul lets the the church in Colossae know that I'm doing this so that you can be perfect. And and it's an all-inclusive thing. It's kind of missing in our text, but but what he says is we proclaim him admonishing every person, teaching every person, so that we could present every person perfect, without exclusion. All right, and that's, that's powerful. It's not just for super-Christians. It's for every person. And it goes back to verse one, chapter 1, verse 22, where, where Christ died to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. Remember, we looked at that last week? Holy, uh, without blemish, and free from accusation. And that's kind of what perfect means. Now, The word that's used in the Greek here is really hard to bring into English because it doesn't quite mean perfect, but some of your translations may have made mature, and that doesn't quite do it justice either. It's like in between those two. But what it it truly means is that each person, by understanding what it means to be in Christ and have Christ in them, that each person in response to that would become holy and absolutely devoted to, to the work of God in their lives. That they would have an undivided heart. That they'd be given over fully to the service of the Lord. And as that happens, that people would become encouraged in heart. And I think that's so important because so many times when I meet with people who are experiencing trouble in their heart, the number one thing they have is a discouraged heart. And in a a passage that 
that is so similar to this one in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I'd encourage you to look at it if you care to think more about sufferings, where, where Paul talks about being hard-pressed but not crushed, persecuted, not abandoned, struck down, not destroyed, that, that, that you carried around in your body the death of Christ, but you have this constant pressure that is, that is just allowing the light of Christ to shine from you. But then as you go down, it says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day because Christ is in us. And that understanding allows us to step free from being discouraged in heart. And so these truths of understanding what it means that Christ has been revealed help us to be encouraged in our heart. And it helps us to be united in our love. And united in our love, first of all, for God. For the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, first we're united in our love for him. And then we're united in our love for each other because we're all part of the body of Christ. And so our love for each other is huge. But it goes beyond that because we also become united in love for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So our love, the uniting of our love is in God it's for each other, but it's for the world that desperately needs to know the truth of what's happening. That allows us then to have the full riches of complete understanding in our head and in our heart. The full riches of complete understanding is available to us because of Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures Hidden treasure. Don't you love that? You just think of all these treasure hunts that you go on to find the hidden treasure. The hidden treasure is the knowledge and wisdom found in Christ. Miles Kington says this, Knowledge is knowing that tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. <laughs> Isn't that great? I love that. And what that means is this, as it relates to what we're looking at. You can know a lot about God. But how is your knowledge of God transforming how you respond? How is it changing who you are and how you respond to people and how you act? Because that's the wisdom that plays out. So in what ways are you fulfilling your purpose and are there any ways in which you are being deceived? Understanding the disclosed mystery keeps us from being deceived. In a statement by the National Association of Evangelicals, nothing in the Supreme Court's opinion changes the truth about marriage. What has changed is the legal definition of marriage. You see, God designed marriage. And God defines marriage. And God defines what that is. And, and he defines what is appropriate in our lives. He defines what's appropriate according to his design by how he's created us, both heterosexually and homosexually. What has changed is the legal definition of marriage, which is now at variance with the orthodox biblical faith as it has been affirmed across the century and as it is embraced today by nearly two billion Christians in every nation. In its role as a moral teacher, the law now misleads Americans 
about the true nature of marriage. Evangelicals and other followers of the Bible don't miss this. This is the key. And this is, I believe, where we as a church have been most deceived. In its role as a moral teacher, the law now misleads Americans about the true nature of marriage. Evangelicals and other followers of the Bible have a heightened opportunity to demonstrate the attractiveness of loving Christian marriages and families. Evangelicals should renew their commitment to the sacrificial love and covenantal faithfulness to which Jesus calls all husbands and wives. Listen, this ruling has now given us a new opportunity, and that opportunity is to reveal even more what an amazing marriage the way that God designed for it to be looks like. And that radiates to a world that longs to have that. So squeeze your wife a little harder. Love your husband a little more. And let some of the stuff that gets in the way of that go along the wayside. Because it's deception that distracts you from your purpose. As a witness to the truth, evangelicals should be gracious and compassionate to those who do not share their views on marriage. John Piper, real quickly. My main reason for writing is not to mount a political counter-assault. I don't think that's the calling of the church as such, and I would agree. My reason for writing is to help the church feel the sorrow of these days and the magnitude of the assault on God and his image in man. Christians, now more clearly than others, can see the tidal wave of pain that is on the way as sin creates its own misery. We weep over our sins. We don't celebrate them. We don't institutionalize them. We turn to Jesus for forgiveness and help. In our best moments, we weep for the world and for our own nation. In the days of Ezekiel, God put a mark of hope on the foreheads of men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in Jerusalem. What I am writing for is not political action, but, for, but love for the name of God and compassion for the city of destruction. So, Lord... Thank you that you have revealed Christ, that you have disclosed the mystery. And in so disclosing the mystery, that you, God, have also revealed to us that it's by your love that we will reveal the truth of who you are. Lord, you walked this earth. And there's nothing new that we're seeing that you didn't see. You understand what we're looking at. But it was your demonstration of love that reached to people. Help us as a church understand that it's time for us to rise and let people know us by our love. Praise in your name. Amen.